Discussion keeps the world turning. This is Roundtable. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Roundtable. Coming to you live from Beijing. I'm He Young. Good as always to have you along. The built environment we all share should be fully accessible and usable for everyone, including those living with disabilities. A new law in this country puts this goal front and center. We go through the details so you don't have to. And when it comes to a change from the textbook-only approach to bringing child development learning to life, nothing compares to lifelike baby simulators. Classrooms in the U.S. have been using these robotic babies to teach an important lesson of parenthood. Is it a good idea? For today's program, I'm joined by Ding Hung and Pearl in the studio. First on today's show. Chinese lawmakers have passed a new law to create a more accessible living environment for the elderly, people living with disabilities, and anyone with mobility difficulties. The newly introduced Barrier-Free Environments Development Law will take effect on September the first this year. The goal is to realize an inclusive society where all people are able to move freely and safely with comfort. So. Ding Hong, let's go to you first. What are some of the highlights that jump out at you about this new law? Well, there are a couple of highlights. Let's put it in this way. Now, first of all, this particular law was approved in late June. It consists of eight chapters and making you know provisions regarding the construction of accessible facilities, accessible information exchanges, and social services. Guarantee measures, as well as、um, superv- supervision and management, liability, etc., etc. So basically, I think the idea is that the the construction of barrier-free environments for these、uh, relatively vulnerable people should be combined with aging-friendly renovations, and governments above the county level should. Work out some really concrete plans according to this law, and to really implement renovations on some of those targeted barrier-free facilities. For for instance, the law is、uh, trying to improve the regulation regarding, say,、uh, the installation of elevators and other barrier-free facilities in some of the existing residential buildings, especially those you know multi-story. Residential buildings in older communities, right? They are more often than not、um, in in a sort of a lacking of、uh, elevators. So, I think the law is trying to address these issues, and also there were, you know,、uh, there were、um, articles regarding the introduction of Braille textbooks for those、uh, visually challenged people, as well as you know more. Try to to address the issue of unfriendly small print on user manuals,、uh, especially for those you know medicine and food products. I guess yes, those visually visually impaired people. Yes,、um, and also we're talking about let's say once a person gets older, maybe your eyesight just gets a little bit worse, and the small and tiny font, it can be very annoying. And on top of the、uh, almost. Five or six things that、uh, Ding Hong already told us.、Um, there are other,、um, and well, there are other two other articles or entries in this law that are major chapters that are devoted to purposes such as clarify local standards for barrier. Free environment construction and that cannot be lower than the national ones. I know with this one sentence, when you listen to it, it's like just. It's just one sentence, but actually, there's a lot of substantial meat that is carried by it because、um, we often see with、um, you know China is a huge country with multiple layers of government, and when the lower levels of、uh, government, such as grassroots level,、um, sometimes you know 
there might not be enough resources, or there might not be enough consideration. That maybe you just take a discount on some of these、um, qualities or some of the、um, measures that are being uttered here. And also, lastly, the what the eighth chapter of this new law encourages and supports the development and application of technologies in this regard, and its encouragement in encouragement in R and D, and for really a boost in this area. Just so that you know, technology-wise, maybe we'd be able to see new inventions that are catered towards the needs of those、um, who are living with disabilities, or the elderly, or those who can't be,、um, who are experiencing mobility. Difficulties altogether. So yes, that is the groundwork of this、uh, topic of discussion. And Pearl, you're from South Africa, and、um, I, I trust that you've done some research in this area as well. So, what was your knee-jerk reaction to see this new law being implemented in China in the very near future? Well, for me, it just speaks to the commitment that has been made by various countries. Including China,、um, to ensure that every environment、uh, that is out there, physical environment, where any person with limitation,、um, it, it may be like mobility or vision or hearing, can live、um, and function in a society independently and、uh, without. Facing a lot of、uh, struggles, so this is the commitment that we're seeing that countries are making throughout the years, and、uh, I mean this is not new in China. When you look at、um, back in the nineteen, well, early nineteen nineties, there were efforts that were made to improve、uh, the environments, transportation, and other facilities so that they are more accessible to、um, people with disabilities, especially as well as the elderly. But、uh, now, with these new、um, efforts or this new law, it means that what is has been existing is being enhanced.、Mm-hmm. I mean, when I walked. Into a an elevator, I can see Braille、uh, writing on the on on the elevator for people who are visually impaired. So that is encouraging, meaning that people can walk in with their canes or guide animals and, and be able to feel. Their way or read you using their hands, so that they know what the instructions are and where they need to go. And some of the elevators also have、uh, voice prompts, so、mm. when you walk in, you can hear which floor you are on and、uh, be able to navigate your way through the building using the elevator. So that those are some of the progresses or the the work, some of the work that has been done. And then, similarly, in South Africa, there have been a number of、uh, laws that have been passed to make、uh, the living、um, conditions of people with disabilities better. I mean, we have、um, also signed up to the United Nations、um, conventions that supports and promotes、um, the improvement of uh, of uh, of uh, environments around us or builds. Up environments, those environments that we have、uh, created as human beings, as we tr- as we develop buildings, parks,、um, infrastructure such as you know railway stations,、mm. etc. Even airports, we have to make those even more accessible for pe- to people that、uh, have limitations, and、um, also just to make them even more comfortable because.、Um, I mean, we can't take we take for granted us people,、uh, in inverted commas, able-bodied people. We take for granted what、uh, other people struggle with, and so we,、uh, as human beings, it is our duty to make every environment more、um, comfortable for people, or even more accessible for people around us. So yes,、uh, we do see a lot of、uh, progress in many countries, including South Africa and China. I mean, there are ramps、mm-hmm. in most public spaces when you enter a public building. People with wheelchairs or people who are on wheelchairs can be able to wheel themselves up.、Um, even at schools, there are initiatives that have been taken. I mean, I. 
I will have to say I don't see a lot of, uh, well, I don't go to a lot of schools, but I've seen a few schools that do have ramps that uh, make it make the school accessible to people on wheelchairs and also people who are on crutches who are uh, disabled but uh, use crutches. They can be able to walk um, freely without any impediments. I mean, you, you can't wait, make pathways small so that people with uh, crutches cannot be able to walk alongside other people who are not on crutches. So you need to take those things into consideration when you make your designs and, uh, and planning. So yes. there are many um, initiatives that have been taken by different countries and I count South Africa in that. And I've seen, um, working, be, having been in China for so many years, I've seen a lot of progress also with that re- in that regard. And this is encouraging that they are, that they are passing this law and they are affecting it. So th- because it shows that um, there is a- an awareness that more needs to be done. Yes, definitely. I think more needs to be done is kind of key here because we've all seen some improvements, but I suppose we're at a certain point now that we need to pursue quality over quantity, but also more quantity would help. But let's do it in a smart way if we can. Um, Do you know this one is for you? Can you provide us with a brief recap with, um, you know, the steps that we've taken, if we can chronologically sort of label, um, Mm -hmm. you know, the progress that's been made so far since 1989, when uh, accessible facility construction was a thing and officially started building in this country. Yeah, of course, you know, based on the research I have done, yeah, it's um, without any doubt, it is. Uh, it has been a, a kind of um, everlasting endeavor on the part of all levels of the Chinese governments. Basically, in the 1990s, China introduced uh, legislation regarding the protection of people with disabilities and the elderly. And in 2012, uh, in 2012, yeah, basically 11 years ago, regulations, they were uh, rolling out of the regulations on the construction of a barrier-free environment for people. And now we have a new law. So the data I can find is that according to the Ministry of Housing and Urban Rural Development, from 2019 to 2021, a total of 115,000 old residential communities were renovated in cities and towns across the country, which ended up benefiting 20 million households. And um, from 2016 to 2020, for example, barrier-free renovations were conducted for 650,000 impoverished families with, you know, with members of severe physical disabilities. So uh, a lot of a lot of uh, work has been done and more needs to be done. I think one focal point is actually now because we're talking about um, we are living in a very digitalized era, right? Mm-hmm. With all these kinds of mobile payments, online registration, right hailing, you just cannot live without this kind of um, digital operations. So I guess when the widespread application of new technology have um, brought a lot of um, convenience to people's daily life, the disabled people as well as our senior citizens might face some gap in this particular regard. So I think the government is trying to make more efforts or invest more resources to make efforts in this regard. Yes, and there's a lot of encouragement even towards the companies who are coming up with um, the apps that you come up with a version that is barrier free. And um, we've seen that some apps do have this feature, but it's not without bugs. And that's the problem here, because sometimes with some of these so-called improvements, they exist on a superficial level, but once you start using it, it's like, oh, blocked, oh, yeah. buffering again. And that just severely impedes, you know, the user experience. And that's just not good enough I for those we, in need. I think we could be in the era of, or in the period of trial and error with that, with regards to that, because we still have to, like, um, I guess, perfect 
or find the perfect um, app or function that actually does help people that are limited in various ways. So that's why maybe you'll see a lot of, you know, bugs that uh, pop up in, (laughs) in one of those or in many of these, uh, in many of these um, apps. And uh, I was looking at that, the stats that says 325 websites have actually um, come up with uh, services that do uh, support the elderly and disabled. Mm-hmm. And, and that looked, and that's a stats from the Ministry of Industry and Information Technology, uh, which was released in April in uh, 2022, which is that's about 325 websites and mobile apps completed upgrades to better meet the needs of the elderly and people with disabilities in getting access to telecommunications, reading, travel, and shopping online. And to me, that sounds like a very small number because I think that more than I mean the number of uh, websites and uh, apps is much higher than that so there is a gap um, that needs to be closed and um, a lot more uh, companies or online companies need to maybe pull up their socks and try to find ways of you know um, meeting the needs of people with disabilities as well as the elderly yes and maybe that is exactly where we're at right now from regulations to law you know building this accessible environment is important Mm. discuss yeah because (laughs) you know compared to administrative regulations or regulatory measures laws provides a wider broader legal basis right to basically to provide a legal basis to guarantee this kind of support for the uh, for people with disability and senior citizens, um, yeah. So it's it's because um, um, regulations can be more arbitrary. I'm not saying it's necessarily arbitrary here in the case of Chinese government, but um, compared to legal regulations, you know, legal documents, it can be more arbitrary more often than not. And with the law, then it is legally binding and then it um, certainly carries more force for the relevant um, departments, well, and companies to follow the law. And also when you look at the data from the China Disabled Persons Federation, there are more than 85 million people in this country living with a disability, and that accounts for 6.2% of the total Chinese population. So it is a huge population that is underserved and looks to have their lives improved. And that could start from when they feel that it's a little bit more convenient, that you feel more secure to just get out of the house and just conduct the daily activities just like any other person. And you know the kind of encouragement that would give to people and also the opportunities that could give to people, that is just, I think, a great deed to serve. But also if you want to get private companies on board, not every company is putting their corporate social responsibility first on their priority list. And Obviously, so therefore, you know, having a law, it, it bolsters the um, awareness and the necessity a little bit, I suppose. And you also have to enforce the law. So there has to be some monitoring mechanism that comes with it so that we ensure that people with negative attitudes or who are not willing to make a change on their own um they have there is a way of trying to nudge them <laughs> in that direction you know to follow the law and implement the right um the right um measures to cater to people with varying disabilities or yeah mm-hmm. or abilities yeah you know? Yeah. Mm. Also, I want to ask you guys, you know, in terms of building a barrier free environment, because essentially this is what the law is about and this is what the goal is here. What aspects should we take under consideration? What exactly are we talking about here? We're talking about making people making our surroundings more accessible 
That's what Give it us is. Some We're examples. talking about making the, people feel people with who are differently who have different abilities, let's say, let's put it that way. I don't want to be politically incorrect here, but who people with varying disabilities because according to the United Nations, you know, everyone at some stage will experience some yeah. level of disability. I mean, we all growing old and they say that only a few people actually remain healthy and uh, able to function properly and uh, without limitations uh, in their lives throughout Mm. their entire lives so as we grow older some of us might not be even uh, be mobile when we reach our like the age of 80 or 90 and so there needs to be uh, uh, a consideration of that to ensure that people of, of different abilities are able to function irrespective of age or gender you have to be able to move around comfortably yeah. in your environment so that means you, if if we need braille we we install yeah. braille writing uh, on public uh, public fa- facilities or public uh, buildings or if we need an elevators in all buildings we install elevators so it's just it's just being hum- humane yes. to our fellow citizens or fellow people and there are exact sort of uh, aspects that we can go through, such as physical accessibility, sensory accessibility, cognitive accessibility, and technological accessibility. And these are four things that have been written in the books and shared around the world that when we talk about design and creation of the specific accessible facilities and equipment to people, if you can combine two out of the four, then mm. there's a good chance that you're good that you're doing a good job. Wow. So yeah, um, if yeah. we may just go a little bit more into like how can this be panned out for people in a more concrete way? Yeah. So indeed, it's um I agree. It's going to be a holistic approach, right? For example, when we talk about cognitive accessibility, it's it's about consideration for individuals with cognitive disabilities like uh, dementia, right? Mm. Like uh, Alzheimer's. Yeah, yeah. yeah. creation yeah. of environment that is clear and easy to understand. And sensor, sensory accessibility, I guess we are talking about, you know, addressing the needs of individuals with visual or hearing mm. difficulties. Like um, it might involve... Uh, incorporating features like uh, braille signage, audible announcements, uh, visual indicators, all kinds of this um, um, assistance. Let's let's put it in in, in this way. So, um, mm. yeah, it's going yeah. to be. It's uh, we're always on the road uh, to be better. Right. To be a better society, right? And Every you, country is doing this. Yes, and some started a bit earlier on, some a bit later, and some with a little bit more consideration and more of this w- awareness of people being on board. I think this is also very important because you sort of need... Well, there are a lot of things that you you can't really see, you can't really touch, but it's like a silent agreement among people. And can you get people on board in saying that maybe you feel like, well, you're young and you feel omnipotent right now, but, you know, helping people out when, when maybe that day comes. So what do you see as, I guess, the biggest obstacles right now that, you know, impedes that kind of involvement? First of all, it's attitudes. People yeah. who have negative attitudes towards uh, people who are different from them, we need to change that so that we are able to be more open to, um, our, you know, understanding what people need around our communities. So some people may not fully comprehend the barriers faced by individuals with disabilities or the benefits of creating an inclusive environment. And so we need to create that awareness. There are also issues with cost, though, because... Mm. That's there a big are, one. There are diverse um, needs that we need to cater to. And so needing identifying the cost that is, uh, I guess, is needed to alter, make alterations to a building, an old building for that matter, might be a, a, a one of the main challenges. And, and also like... Um, like funding, sourcing funding for all these changes that are needed might be a very big challenge also. 
Yes, mm. in this country so far, it seems like the government has really been taking that leading role in funding. Um, yes, that's here's the really difficult question. How do you excite the public in something like this that is worthwhile to do, but not everybody might see the need immediately? Yeah, indeed, indeed. So, yeah, foster inclusion and acceptance, this kind of um, public awareness raising effort takes time, but we will be there. And yes, I really like that quote, the greatness of a nation can be judged by how it treats its weakest member. And we are talking about those who could be um, living with disabilities, those who are going through a tough time in mobility, and how can we help everybody on an equal footing? That is really important. We'll be back after this break. Don't go away. Discussion keeps the world turning. This is Roundtable. You're listening to Roundtable with myself, He Young. I'm joined by Ding Hung and Pearl in the studio. Coming up, in some classes in the U.S., lifelike infant simulators give students a taste of parenthood. What can a crash course in caring for a frightening, realistic doll, no, I mean a, a lifelike robotic baby, teach teenagers? And it's official, folks have voted with their feet sandals, the shoes of summertime, are not selling like they used to in a very hot summer. What gives? Our podcast listeners can find us at Roundtable China on Apple Podcast. And there's got to be a question or questions you want to raise and hear us discuss. So share it with us, would you? There's a place to do it. EZFM Roundtable at foxmail.com. Emails are fine, but voice memos are always better. Your voice could be featured in our heart to heart segment. Now on Roundtable, as we continue today's discussion. For almost three decades, selected schools in the U.S., Canada, and other countries have launched a special parenting class by incorporating infant simulators. The fake baby must be fed, burped, changed, and soothed, mimicking the needs of a real baby. Teenagers are asked to take care of lifelike robotic babies, sometimes for a weekend, so that they can experience firsthand what it's like to be a new parent and hopefully have a better idea of what their lives might look like if they happen to become pregnant as teenagers. What kind of class is this, guys? Parenting class? Health class? The most effective birth control sex education? Tell us what this is about. Well, it's... um. I, I... Um, in my perception, it's pretty difficult to define what exactly its purpose is. It seems it's oriented towards, you know, sex education for teenagers, but seems that there is a broader context as well. But basically, you know, in this kind of uh, health classes, uh, robotic babies are used to uh, simulate the needs and demands of a real newborn baby these uh, robotic babies are programmed in a smart way to to really to be able to behave like real babies which require attention care and nurturing from uh, uh, from students and students are more often than not assigned a particular baby simulator for a specific period of time usually a weekend or um, a couple of days. In my personal opinion, that may be too short of a period, maybe. Really? Yeah. Oh, <laughs> sorry to jump in. I saw some of these uh, feedbacks from um, students, and apparently they say for the weekend, yeah, they, they bring the simulator baby home with a smile on their face, and they come mm. back crying <laughs> because it's a lot of work. And um, Pearl, yeah. yeah, so what do you think of these classes, do you have these kind of um, arrangements in, in South Africa? Certainly not in China. No, we don't have uh, such, well, we don't have a baby simulator, what, electronic baby Well, robots? this thing is expensive. <laughs> As part of, uh, of the curriculum or the health education curriculum in South Africa, no. I haven't heard, I haven't come across any school or um, mm -hmm. district that uses um, these babies, fake babies, to try and, and, and encourage or 
teach children about sex education? No, I haven't come across that. But I may say that we do kind of have a similar problem as with the the U.S. in terms of teenage pregnancy, um, and so I don't know. But it hasn't come up, I think, in our <laughs> in our debates, you know, education debates uh, or schools debates in terms of, you know, when we talk about legislation and rules and how to deal with uh, such an issue. It hasn't come up that they consider using uh, the baby robots as part of uh, the curriculum to teach mm-hmm. kids about um, sex and, well, about sex and how to, you know, yeah. stay. There are other ways, there are other, you know, part of, uh, I mean, uh, other means of teaching kids about sex and so on, but I not no babies yet, no robot babies yet. <laughs> right, and these uh, robotic babies they become more and more technologically advanced. Because uh, back in the day when I was going to elementary school in the U.S., I remember this is one of those elective classes. But it's not a must for everybody to go through. You can sign up for one. And I remember back then, the babies just looked like a rubber doll. And they mm-hmm. they can burp. They can do certain things. But now we're talking full-blown 21st century technological advance. Reminds me of Megan 2020 version of the thriller. Um, anyway... Uh, or Annabelle, which is uh, <laughs> mm. an older horror film. But anyway, it's not so scary, hopefully. But it can do so many things, and the teacher can program. There are 14 different ver- um, models that one can, you, you know, you can have the really fussy baby, the really peaceful baby, um, and, and basically... Uh, this can all be chosen and programmed and see if this uh, teenager wants to go through hell so early to understand, you know, getting up late, uh, getting up early, getting up in the mi- middle of the night to take care of the baby. And oh, no, the baby is making a fuss now. Oh, changing diapers. And and uh, oh, yeah, if you accidentally uh, drop the baby on the floor, it'll start screaming and, and crying uh, mm. nonstop. All of this stuff can be simulated by this thing. And it costs more than a hundred, uh, sorry, more than a thousand US dollars if you lose it. This is according to bostonglobe.com. Um, mm. So yeah, this is, well, it's interesting that f- from the adult's point of view, it's like, oh, this is the best and most effective form of sex um, birth control. But for yeah. the teenager or for sometimes even younger kids, when they encounter this kind of baby slash infant simulator they're only thinking about oh i really want to take care of this presumable baby and um i want to i want to do well i want to care for it so it's training you how to sort of also appreciate how your mom and dad what they've done for you you know for so so like different if you're the teenager, you might be thinking differently about this. By the looks of it, kid, uh, teenagers are not really <laughs> happy yeah. about this uh, program because uh, looking at one of the students here, Olivia, uh, in uh, Georgia, in the United States, she's four, she was 14 years old when she became part of the program and she was uh, really not happy about the screaming baby being up all at all at odd hours of the night taking care of the crying baby uh, according to her mom she was crying real tears you know rocking Whoa. the baby trying to feed the baby the bottle <laughs> and you know her trips to the bathroom were really cut short because she had to go back and take care of the baby that's because now another catch is that if you don't take care of the baby properly, the baby is programmed to record you and record when when you are being negligent. So it will be, a, a, I guess, a negative score against you when you go back to school mm. and the and the and the and the tracking device shows that you were negligent. Oh well, no! Well, that's too complicated. To, <laughs> even even to many of the adults, you know. But I think the idea behind this kind of programs or education programs um, is 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 good. I think. But um, I'm I'm personally. Why do you personally, think it's good? 
yeah, you know, the idea is good, but you know, I agree with you. Yeah, but that. but I'm personally more skeptical、mm. about the the real degree of effectiveness this kind of、uh, programs can really achieve because.、Um, The idea is trying to tell the teenagers, the middle school and senior high school students that it's not that easy to take care of a newborn baby,、mm. and but you know, yeah, it it's puts... but this kind of、uh, difficulty in terms of caring for a newborn baby exists for every、mm. age cohort, whether you are pregnant at the age of eighteen or at the age of thirty-five.、Or、this、15. kind of、um, difficulty is universal. So.、True. So when they experience this kind of、um, difficulty at a very young age, maybe when they get to the age of thirty-five, they still don't want to have a baby. Well, the thing is, <laughs> if you're thirty-five and you put this simulator or robot、uh-huh. in one's hands, how many of you would willingly want, like after this experience, feel, oh, this is exactly what I want to do? Wake up in the middle of the night when you're struggling out of bed because you're getting a little bit older. So, <laughs> what do you think? I mean, I think I I, I think this experiment or these classes they help put kids. Students in the shoes of their parents, basically,、mm-hmm. just to understand what they deal with from the moment they are born,、um, how they handle life as it continues to go on, as well as this new life that they have to be taking care of, you know, and try to mold into a a, a productive human being as they grow up,、uh, and also, you know, it's a, it's an experience, yes, that might. Discourage other young students from not uh, uh, pre- get falling pregnant at a young age. But a study was done. It was published in 2016.、Uh, it was done in Australia with kids that were part of this、uh, similar program, and they found that it actually does not work. M- more kids were falling pregnant before they were、um, they were 20 before they reached the the age of 20, and some of them gave birth to babies before they reached the age of 20. Amongst the group, the focus group that they they did the study amongst, and、um, that was published in Lancet. If you go to the、mm-hmm. Lancet、uh, journal, you will find the study there. So apparently, it does not work. But、Can I also offer a counter argument here?、Mm-hmm. That was also around the similar time when the Australian government came out with a policy that gives every mom, when they give birth, a substantial lump sum amount of money of financial support.、Mm-hmm. And when you have like both things going on, maybe there is a correlation of some sort. So yes, I I, I agree with you that maybe the results, the direct results of a class like this or an arrangement of the infant in,、uh, simulators might not curb. Um, teenage pregnancies for sure, but you don't exactly know what to pin down in terms of the relationship. Yeah, but still, there's no sign or data that shows that this kind of class helps to reduce teenage pregnancy. Right now, we have、mm-hmm. this、uh, lens, this.、Uh, Study in Australia, as well as、um, anecdotal、um, reports from、uh, teachers in schools in the U.S. who who do admit that yes, we don't have tangible data that are, or a, a research that has been done, but what they are appreciating themselves、uh, when they look、yeah. at this program is that. Kids are able to appreciate the the trouble and the challenges of being of parenting. Yes, and、uh, they they are able to understand、uh, and put themselves in the shoes of their parents. You know, who are juggling a lot of things. It could be work. It could be、um, other. But you know whatever they have going on in their lives, as well as this newborn that has been now welcomed into the family, so they they're able to appreciate that because I mean for most of us as kids we just leave a lot of our responsibilities to our parents. We lean on our parents for most things, and and we we get mad when they do, don't do things for us and so on. So by putting yourself in someone else's shoes and walking. 
I guess, a mile in someone else's shoes, you you learn to appreciate the struggles that, and the challenges that they go through in achieving or providing um, that life that you have. And that sounds like a very mature teenager. I mean, that's great. I really would like to see that mm. to be sort of rolled out in a wider range and scope and encourage more teenagers. But also some of these... Um, these people who've signed up to this class also say that, well, this is a really good opportunity to sort of, well, yeah, you have like a semi-real experience of taking care of a baby. And mm. then some people who want to get into, let's say, pediatric care, or they, they're just fond of babies. And some women and a lot, I guess a lot of women out there have this maternal instinct. Not all of us do. And I don't think that should be something to be frowned upon. Let's just accept that everybody's different. But there's also, you know, the brighter side of things as well as, you know, all the um, other side of the story that yeah. we're showing you too. Yeah. You know, one, one another angle I can offer regarding this uh, kind of a training program is that, um, you know, because right now we are not seeing plenty of data regarding how many boys yeah. and how many oh, girls are participating. I can tell you something this about kind that of curriculum, yeah. right? So, uh, so some people might argue that yeah. these classes can reinforce this kind of a uh, conventional or traditional yeah. gender roles by depicting yeah. baby caregiving as primarily the responsibility on the part of women. Well, That's mothers. a really great point. And just by the same article published by a Boston Globe, apparently in the writer's uh, daughter's school, there were only two boys who've ever signed up for this class of the mm. year of her daughter. And then the vast majority of those who like to participate in this elective course are girls. So, And, and one of the guys um, sort of lost to, like, you know, I dare you contest and therefore he <laughs> signed up. Yeah. So so yeah, what do you think this is also reinforcing the gender roles in the sense that it obvious it's not, you know, um uh what do you call it? A a a a class that everyone has to attend and and rightfully so. Therefore, it's bound to be women who are just going to continue to perpetuate this gender role. Yeah, it does reinforce gender roles if you do, if you do not make it compulsory for everyone. Yeah. I think mm. you have to make it compulsory for everyone and so that everyone gets to participate and experience yeah. because everyone gets to be parents when they you know, make babies. So <laughs> you can't make, well, you well, can it's through yeah. science. You can. <laughs> now we are able to do that, you know. But <laughs> usually <laughs> we still do it the more, you know, traditional way where two people participate. And yeah. so I think <laughs> everyone needs to have that experience. Let's make it compulsory. If you introduce it in a school, make it compulsory for everyone, boys and girls, to to have a similar experience but when it comes to parents also i think parents are more happy about this program because it, it absolves them from the responsibility of teaching their kids about the birds and the bees because it's, a, it's still a controversial subject for some for how, some families especially well, I mean, you learn about the baby. I'm sure you have to learn about how the baby came to be here. That's I mean, sex education in the classroom. Yes, but some you have to also learn at home. Your your parents have to t teach you about contraceptives. Also, you don't leave that to the teachers. That's what um, most parents do. They leave a lot of education, a lot of uh, what they should be also teaching, helping the teachers out with, to the teachers. It's like, oh, you learned that at school. No, you need Need to also oh, participate wow. be a hands-on parent that's why we have all these problems and mm. uh, we have kids that are i mean contraceptives are still very controversial in some of the households especially con co conservative households because they have uh, negative uh, uh, i guess uh, minds about or ideas about contraceptives so we need to talk about all of these things and help the teachers out it's not all up to them to <laughs> teach little kids and, and uh, you know, young adults about life. 
Well, Pearl, that little speech you just gave—that was avant-garde for most Chinese parents, I would think. But I think it's useful to hear these different opinions. You know, I'm an African. I know it's、so、because we, most, we are also conservative in our nature as Africans, and this happens in our households. That's why we have、uh, challenges with、uh, young adults and teenagers. Hmm.、Mm. Yeah. And it seems like this is something that、uh, is very new and、um, thought-provoking for a lot of Chinese people to to learn about. But、uh, I think this is a useful discussion to have. And、um, as we're doing research. I came across this little paragraph of a mom to a daughter who just took care of the、uh, robotic baby for a weekend, and she wrote her observation and reflection. And I, there's this little paragraph I think is really sweet. I I want to share with you. So basically, here is Stephanie. Albert,、um, writing about what is the fundamental difference between the robotic baby and actually carrying her baby girl in her arms.、Um, she wrote, "As moms, we recognize ourselves in our babies, then gasp at fresh expressions that make them wholly their own. That's the attachment that gets parents through all those fitful nights, not guilt or duty." And certainly not an A in class. My own baby smelled like rain. She was sociable and magnetic, attracting everyone in the crowd. In the crowd with her bright, vivid eyes, and I couldn't take my eyes off her. She was mesmerizing. I remember all that too. So I mean, the real thing always beats robots. Period. In everything in life, can I just please make that sweeping judgment? <laughs> You're listening to Roundtable. Coming up next, wondering what shoes are out of fashion in the summer of 2023? Sandals. Stay tuned to find out more on that. Looking for passion? How about fiery debate? Want to hear about current events in China from different perspectives? Then tune in to Roundtable. East meets West, and understanding is the goal. It's the hour of roundtable with myself, Hu Young. I'm joined by Ding Hung and Pearl in the studio. The popularity of wearing sandals during summer appears to be on the decline. The hashtag. Why are fewer people wearing sandals in summer? Has been trending on microblogging site Weibo, attracting over 500 million reads and 17 million discussions. This is quite an astounding number.、Mm. <laughs> so, tell us about a survey recently that that apparently found out that people are abandoning sandals. Now, this particular survey. Collected nearly twenty five hundred valid responses, with over fifty seven percent of the respondents indicating that they do not wear sandals during the <laughs> summer. And among those people,、uh, those born after two thousand accounted for over sixty percent, surpassing any other age cohorts. <laughs> And guess what? The top reason for not、yeah. wearing sandal is really. This kind of a、uh, fear or concern about getting sunburned feet. We are talking about <laughs> a percentage of nearly thirty-five percent of the respondents, and other reasons include sweaty feet, finding them uncomfortable, too cold in a room where with air conditioning, and not allowed by their employers. And you know, one and there is also some fashion-related reasons as well because.、Um, Because、um, sandals are seen by some people as incompat as incompatible with modern lifestyles and the transportation methods. For example, when they are commuting in subways or buses,、uh, people who wear sandals, according to these people, they say、uh, are more likely to be stepped on. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and ouch! Oh, it hurts! It hurts! Oh, well, one thing I can definitely vouch for. Chinese person is that in traditional Chinese medicine, there's that notion that the freezing coldness seeps through the soles of your feet and into your bones, and therefore it's bad for you. <laughs> okay, joking aside, Pearl, what's going on here? What 
is in the minds of people. I'm just thinking they're just going out of fashion. <laughs> Sandals are just going out of fashion. People are just feeling more comfortable in uh, maybe sneakers. I see a lot of sneakers. A lot of people wearing sneakers. I wear sneakers myself. Question, mm-hmm. my friend. Doesn't it get too hot? And also, talking about sweaty feet, if you're wearing winter shoes in summertime, wouldn't that be sweaty? It, do- it does get hot, but I also wear flip-flops. So not to work, I don't though. I do not not to work no yeah. I, I mean to work I work I wear like Let me see what you're feet, wearing sneakers oh. So oh. but you at look home really hot <laughs> <laughs> It may look hot but you know it's comfortable for me um and Good for you girl Yeah and yeah. the material it's 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 hot. um <laughs> the material is good so uh, I'm comfortable as long as I'm comfortable yeah, you know yeah, yeah. I it doesn't matter. Don't and mean then, to put you on the spot. And then some people... No, no, I'm not on the spot. It's okay. <laughs> and some people are, are self-conscious. Some people just don't like to have their feet out there, you know. Maybe they think they don't look good. And some people are too judgmental. Especially in the age of uh, smartphones, people might be taking pictures <laughs> of your feet and posting them online and be like... Look at that! What is that? Is that a dinosaur? <laughs> does she, does she dig graves with those feet? Oh yeah! You know all those ugly comments that you get <laughs> when people post um, funny, well, funny looking in inverted commas, right. funny looking feet. I mean, I actually do not judge people on their physical Never. appearances we because don't. they don't have people, most of the time, people don't have uh, a say in what they come to this earth looking like or how they grow up, you know, looking. I don't have the, I have tiny feet and my toes are like stubby. And, That's okay. And, That's but cute. I, no, I'm, and I'm good with that. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm very matter. comfortable in my own skin, but I, I do understand that there are other people that don't really you know feel very comfortable with that right. showing parts of their bodies that they very so self-conscious about yeah, yeah. and also i want to check with you guys one of the most deadly fashion sins one could ever commit wearing socks with, with sandals <laughs> oh my oh, god that's... what do you guys think about that hate that... it yeah, that's that's disastrous for really even for, for you, for men, I No, guess. I mean, I mean, you're a wonderful, handsome young man. <laughs> I'm only saying you. that um, you don't yeah. pay attention to fashion, so yeah. so you'll never be caught wearing that. Yeah, that's I I, I mean, uh, wearing wearing sandals without socks without socks is is much 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 better in, in terms of you know fashion fashionable sense wise uh than wearing i somehow feel he's under a lot of pressure for saying these things no 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 it's it's really from the bottom of my heart so yeah he strikes me as a sincere person yes yes i, very. I believe yeah. that i believe yeah i believe saying. you yeah i i i i hardly wear any sandals personally but uh wearing sandals together with socks that that's yeah. terrible and what's the point of wearing sandal? Because realistically, one benefit about wearing sandal is that you do not have to worry about wet socks or shoes <laughs> during during summer downpouring rain, oh, right? Oh. And your feet can breathe. Great. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and also in the professional setting, sometimes it just doesn't go with office attire or semi formal clothing and uh but as someone who's in a fashion let me just say but if you're a true fashionista then you know with confidence fashion rules are made to be broken therefore you can pair up your sandals with bright socks let's say if you have like you wear like white sandals pair it up with like red socks or something like that can be quite fashionable can be (laughs) (laughs) and that's it for today's roundtable thank you so much Pearl and Dinghong for joining the discussion I'm He Yang we'll see you next time